If you're here this morning or if you're watching online, you have a Bible with you, and I hope you do, uh, let's come to James chapter number five this morning. For those of you that are in the house today, if you need a pew Bible, there should be one in the rack in front of you. And we're on page 952, 952 <clears throat> this morning. And uh, we look for a great uh, day in the word of God as we continue our study in James, which we're about to wrap up only a couple of more messages after today in James. And then we'll uh, turn our attention to other matters as we go along in our year 2020. A few years ago, I heard the story of a man in France who was taken to the emergency room of his local hospital having acute stomach pain. They got him to the hospital, his family did, not fully understanding what had happened or why he was in such torment. His belly had swollen to such a degree that it appeared to the attending physicians that the man had swallowed some kind of large animal completely whole. Of course, as you would imagine, they took him and immediately performed an x-ray which revealed something totally abnormal. There was something large, a mass, in his stomach that weighed upwards of 20 pounds. It was so heavy that it had distended his stomach to a position somewhere between the upper portion of his hips. They determined that the man needed immediate surgery. And as they opened him up, they were shocked, as you could probably imagine when they found out when it was all said and done, that the reason that the man was having such discomfort in his abdomen is that for whatever reason, he had swallowed what amounted to 352 whole coins, totaling almost $1,000 in present day value. It appeared that the man was a mental patient and for whatever reason, he had succumbed to a psychological disorder that made him as a human being, for whatever reason, desire to eat money. Now, I've never known anybody that felt compelled to eat money. But I've known and walked in circles with lots of people who loved to consume money. And that's what's on James's heart this morning as we come to James chapter number five. He's going to address us in very stark terms toward a subject of the negative effects, the personal, psychological, and even relational effects that this unbridled drive for money and wealth can have on a human life. James gives us a very direct teaching here. Some have even called it scathing, seething, and it is at its heart an appraisal of wealth and the deceitfulness of riches that I think is very timely for the world in which we live today. Let's look together at what he says, or better yet, let's take a look at what he shouts at us from James chapter five. We're gonna look at the first six verses. Let's stand together, those of you that are able, as we honor the reading of God's word in his presence today. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and <clears throat> silver have corroded 
and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You've laid up treasure in the last days. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you've kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You've lived on the earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You've fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person who does not resist you. I don't know about you, but I think Pastor Jimmy is due for a little vacation. How about you this morning? Maybe a sabbatical or something. He is hot and bothered this morning. And as we take a few minutes, we're gonna find out why. Father, we thank you uh, today for the blessing of your word. And indeed, in this word that is very direct and very pointed and without fluff and stuff, uh, we pray that we'll understand that there's a word in there for all of us for how blessed we are in material things. Maybe not uh, as the uber wealthy would define what it means to be wealthy, but as we think in our hearts of the better part of the rest of the world, uh, we're convicted today in many respects for how good we've been blessed by God, and yet sometimes how less than responsible we've been with all the goodness that you've showered into our lives. So find us faithful this morning. Help us to hear your word and give us a heart as always that's ready not only to hear, but then to obey in a way that honors our risen Christ. And it's in his name we pray and all God's people said, amen and amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Now, there's a lot to draw out of this passage today. In fact, I think you could preach a little mini-series out of this passage this morning and uh, I think maybe the best way to approach it is by looking at who it is that James is actually communicating with. Who's he talking to? And the fact of the matter is, it may seem that this statement of James is somewhat unidimensional. In other words, it may seem on the surface that he's only talking to one group of people, but I think in reality there are three groups of people that James is actually communicating with. Three groups of people that need to hear the message in three different kinds of ways. And so that's the way that I'm going to try to pick the passage apart for a few minutes uh, this morning. First, and I, uh, most obviously, James levels what we might call an indictment against the unbelieving rich. That's the first group of people and the most obvious group of people that he's talking to here. And he's talking to them in very pointed, accusatory kinds of ways, isn't he? It's an indictment against the unbelieving rich. And these rich people that James is addressing, I don't think are so much the rich people that compose membership in his congregation. I don't think James had that many wealthy people in his congregation. He may have had a handful, <clears throat> but probably not very many. I think the people, based on the language here, that James is addressing are what we might call the wicked rich, the unbelieving rich, the self-centered rich. And they were rich in uh, dramatic kinds of ways. We might call them the uber wealthy, members of the land-owning uh, land aristocracy of the day. They'd acquired much wealth, and along with their wealth, they'd acquired uh, major amounts of power. And with that power, instead of using it to be a blessing to people, instead of using it to benefit people's lives, they were using it to bulldoze over others. 
and this is what James has a problem with. So I don't think he's talking to believing wealthy people here today. And the language of fire and judgment, which would be very unusual language to address to believers, uh, the, the fire, the judgment that is to come that James is talking to them about kind of proof of it. Uh, now, to be clear, what, what's condemned here is not wealth itself. Y'all do understand money is morally neutral. It's neither good nor bad. What matters is what your motive is toward money. What's your attitude toward money? And then, not so secondarily, how you use money. So two things come into play with respect to money. The Bible does not say that money is the root of all evil. You know that, don't you? The Bible says what's problematic for a follower of God is the love of money. The love of money is a root among many roots that end up with evil kinds of behavior. So what matters with respect to material wealth is how you view it and how you use it. And when it comes to money, the question is, am I using my wealth for righteous purposes? Am I using my wealth for noble purposes? Am I using my money so that it blesses and benefits not only me and my family, but am I using my material wealth so that it blesses and benefits others? Am I using it in such a way the kingdom of God prospers? Am I honoring God with the way that I use my wealth or am I using my wealth for totally selfish purposes? To get what I want, when I want it, how I want it in a way that never takes into account other people, never seeks to be a blessing to people in need, maybe even sometimes uses wealth to abuse people who are under duress or in need of some kind. What James does here throughout this passage in virtually all six of the verses is to level four charges against unbelieving rich people who use their wealth for totally self-centered ends in ways that are manipulative and abusive toward other people. We're gonna give you these four charges that James levels and we need to take an inventory to see if any of them applies to our life. The first charge he levels is the charge of hoarding. Mm -mm -mm. Hoarding. Now here's the thing, you don't have to be a billionaire to hoard stuff up, you know that, don't you? And if you don't believe that, just walk into your closet when you get home, I'm gonna let that set right there. Hoarding, verse two, your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. They had so much in the closet, they never got aware. They, listen, the moths got to it before they got to it. They never even had a chance to wear all of it. I'm not even going there this morning. Well, he says, your gold, verse three, your gold and uh, your silver have corro corroded and you have laid up treasure in the last days. Now keep in mind that wealth was principally measured back in James's time, not by currency as we tend to measure it today, but by things like produce and uh, clothing and, and hard assets. Two of those three are clearly mentioned here. And James's point here is that, and none of that stuff gonna last. That's his point. When he talks about garments just being stockpiled, I mean, people, you know, love their uh, fancy threads. Think about Joseph in his coat of many colors. Man, when his daddy gave him that coat, he went out and just kind of strutted like a peacock in front of his brothers, you know, and people love clothing. It was the ultimate status symbol and it was the way that they most obviously demonstrated uh, their material wealth in ways that people could see. Uh, and so they stockpiled it. 
And James is basically indicting them. You've got so much, so much more than what you actually need uh, that the insects are getting to it before you even had a chance to wear it. I mean, how many times have you cleaned out your closet and you get a load ready for the goodwill? I mean, we've had that happen in our own home. And I'll see a stack of clothes there and it's like, well, what, what, what are those clothes doing out for? I want to take them to Goodwill. Goodwill, they don't even look like they've ever been worn before. Y'all know what I'm talking about this morning. And this was the case there. He tells them that their precious metals have so stockpiled that they've corroded. You say, well, there you go. The Bible's got an error in it. We all know that gold and silver doesn't rust. That's not an error in the Bible. James is using hyperbole to make a point that they've got all this stuff and it's just gonna corrode over before they ever even have a chance to use it, before they ever have a chance to spend it. The point that he's making here is that stuff doesn't last, amen. That's what he's trying to, uh, to get home this morning. Now, this is not to say you shouldn't save, this is not to say you shouldn't have a 401k or a retirement account. It's not to say you shouldn't uh, plan for the future. The Bible would speak to all of that kind of stuff as wise living. Uh, and we are wise to do that. We just need to understand that there's a difference between responsible saving for the future on the one hand and hoarding on the other. Uh, there, there's, a, there's a world of difference between the two and those who put their trust in things that don't last. Those who stockpile who live sumptuously at the expense of other people. James says one day we'll stand before the Lord and they'll be in for a rude awakening because what's valuable now will be in the end worthless on the most important day that is to come, hoarding. The second indictment here is fraud. Fraud, verse four, behold the wages of the laborers who mowed your field, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you, and the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. Now, the picture here is the wealthy landowner who, who fails to pay his workers their wages. Not as a matter of oversight. It's not, a, oh, I forgot, to, I forgot to do payroll this week. That's not what's at play here. No, he's intentionally holding back. He's not paying them on purpose, there's an intentional delay. And the delay is meant to, to further line his own pockets. He'd rather not pay it because he'd just rather keep it. Even though he doesn't need it, he'd rather just keep it for himself. Now the Old Testament law clearly stipulates that this is problematic. Wage, uh, laborers were to be paid their wages at the end of every working day. You work today and you got paid at the end of that very day. That was the typical process. So when you withheld the wages from a day laborer, it meant that they ran the risk of not being able to feed their family that night. I mean, they needed a daily wage in order to buy what? Daily bread, that's right. They didn't have credit cards. Uh, they didn't have lines of credit. They didn't have any of that stuff. Daily bread required daily pay, and James is very quick to indict these uber wealthy for the way that they treated their workers. It was an offense to Almighty God. Third, James indicts the rich for self-indulgence. Self-indulgence, verse five. You've lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. Underline those two terms, luxury 
and self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. Those two words, luxury and self-indulgence, point to what we would call the lifestyle of the rich and famous, amen. You remember the old show with the British speaking guy? And oh, we love to watch that show because man, if we could have any way we could live like that, man, wouldn't it be great to be able to live like that? Uh, this is what Kent Hughes in his wonderful little book on James calls conspicuous consumption. I like that term. People who live with conspicuous consumption and it brings up images. How many of you have been to the Biltmore House in Asheville, North Carolina, or maybe to the Breakers, the other Vanderbilt estate, which is in Newport, Rhode Island. Man, I've, built, I've been to both those houses. And you know what I come away with? Who needs 43 bathrooms? I mean, who really needs 43 bathrooms in one single family dwelling, right? This is kind of what James is talking about here. Uh, and so you walk through those places and you wonder, man, how, I don't know about you, because I, mean, I was raised, I mean, we weren't, we weren't poor when I was raised, uh, but we could see poor, amen. And so I walk through places like that thinking, I don't understand how anybody could actually live like this. And here's the thing. This language that James is using, luxury, self-indulgent, it is 100%, whenever you find that kind of language in the Bible, it is 100% used negatively. You never see the word luxury or self-indulgent or cognate terms that are closely related. You never see them used positively anywhere in the Bible. That's the kind of language that was used to apply to many of the inhabitants of Sodom before God rained fire and brimstone down on it. Totally self-centered living. In fact, James uses a very pointed analogy here to get the people's attention when he talks about how they were fattening their hearts. I remember the first time I drove through Amarillo, Texas. We lived in Texas for four years and I drove through Amarillo on the way to New Mexico. Amarillo's a cattle town and we came to a point there on I-40 going westbound where there were just cattle on each side of the interstate as far as we could see. I'm not even gonna pretend how to describe the smell here this morning. I've never, don't ever complain about the sawmill up in Cantonma. Don't ever complain about it. Just go to Amarillo and drive through and you'll think the sawmill is no problem whatsoever or the paper mill rather. And so uh, we were driving through there and I had a cattle farmer by church in Missouri that we pastored at at the time and I told him about that and he said, Jim, you know what they were doing with all those cattle there? And I said, no, I don't know anything about cattle. He said, fattening them up, fattening them up. They were getting them ready and you know what they were getting them ready for. Feeding them that rich food to fatten them up and boy, all those cattle constantly consuming everything that was being poured into them, not at all realizing a cattle car was waiting on them. And the destination was judgment. And James takes that image and he applies it to these self-centered folks who were abusing their workers, hoarding at the expense of others in need. A fourth and final indictment James levels against these rich folks is, of all things, murder. That's verse six. You've condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. 
Now we've encountered the word murder earlier in the book of James and at that time we had a little discussion about whether or not James was using the term literally or metaphorically. Here he's probably using it more metaphorically. I don't think this is necessarily murder in a literal sense. But I do think that he's implying that the practical outcome of many of the, much of the behavior of these rich people resulted potentially in a loss of life in some way, shape, or form for the people that they were abusing. I mean, when you withhold the wages of poor workers, you take away their livelihood, and many of them are headed for one of two things, right? They're either not going to eat, so they're going to starve, or they're not going to be able to provide so they're gonna to have to figure out some way to borrow and if they're not being paid, they'll never be able to pay those debts back, which means they're ending up toward a, they'll end up going to a debtor's prison and you couldn't, there was no way out. The only way out of a debtor's prison was just somebody else came and paid your debt for you, which almost never happened. And so in that sense, they were taking away life and livelihood from many of these People. In our parlance today, you know, we would call that kind of behavior what? That's just a killer, right? And so that's kind of the way we even use the language of bad behavior. Man, it's a killer. Well, it didn't literally kill you, but it sure can mess up your life. Y'all tracking with me so far? That's just straight talk from a preacher who's on fire for Jesus and he's very concerned about how people live and how people are treated by the lives of others. And what's interesting about this passage, follow closely with me now, what's most interesting about this passage is that the people who most needed to hear it were not the immediate recipients in James's audience. They're not gonna hear it. This letter is gonna be read to the church. Most of these people that James is indicting are not part of the church. And so this is a rhetorical, a rhetorical device that's being used by James where he's actually addressing people outside the church by addressing people inside the church, right? It'd be, it'd be like me mounting the pulpit and talking about all the politicians I don't like, right? They're not here to hear it, but you're here to hear it and a message is being communicated in a very important way that directly impacts the people who are hearing it, right? And so that raises uh, another group of people that James is addressing, not just those rich who are outside the church, but this becomes for those in the church who are hearing it, this becomes something of a theological statement that they need to learn from. It serves for the people in the church in two ways, first as a warning but then for some in the church, this statement, hot-tempered though it is, also comes across as a bit of an encouragement. And let me explain to you what I mean. The second group of people is a group of believers who may be envious about those who are wealthy. And so this is not only an indictment against the unbelieving rich, it becomes a warning to envious believers. I'm probably talking to a lot of people in the room and a lot of people who are watching this morning who have a desire to become rich. And that's especially infectious, I think, in Western churches like ours and most all of them in America today. Because I don't know anybody who doesn't want to be more financially secure. Everybody in here wants to be more financially secure probably than they are now. 
And I'm not saying that that's altogether a bad thing. There is wisdom in thinking about the future and in taking steps to where you're carefully planning to make sure that you're not gonna be on an obligation on somebody else in the future. The Bible would affirm that kind of approach. So it's not all bad, but here's the thing, there is a danger in it if you're not careful. And so this becomes something of a warning to those who might want to get rich. It's a heads up. Reminds me of what Paul wrote in 1 Timothy 6 and verse 9. Check it out. But those who desire to be rich, circle that phrase. Those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. And here it is. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. That's one of the most important statements about money that you'll find anywhere in the Bible. And it's a statement that would speak to those kinds of people who just can't rest until they've made it to a certain level financially. It serves as something of a reminder of what the rest of the Bible affirms over and over and over again, namely that the secret to security is not found in stockpiles of money. The secret to security is found in a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. The question is, what's the sole source of your security? Do you trust more in your wealth or do you trust wholly in the Lord? You can't trust both at the same time, as we'll find out here in just a minute. This is why Jesus had so much to say about money. Man, he talked a lot about it. He talked a lot about the dangers of wealth, the dangers of having an inappropriate worldly attitude. Remember, James is spending most of this letter addressing people that he's absolutely convinced are living with what he calls double-mindedness trying to be a friend of the world and a friend of God at the same time. And that's especially true when it comes to your attitude toward material possessions. Jesus knew the tendency of the human heart. And James, as the half-brother of the Lord, knew exactly what Jesus taught about all things pertaining to money. I'm sure he was well aware of that account of that rich young man who came to Jesus. Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus hit him, I mean, Jesus made him put his money right where his mouth was. Sell all your possessions, give it to the poor, come and follow me, and then you'll have treasure in heaven. And the man went away sad because he had what? Great wealth. And then Jesus spins on a dime, and he looks at his 12 disciples standing there with him, and he said, how hard it is for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. It is easier for a wealthy man to go through an eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. And I know many of you have heard, well, the eye of a needle is a little small gate that you gotta get out. No, he's talking about the, like the eye of a needle. It's that hard, Jesus said. Why? Because of what it does to your heart, how it consumes your attention, how it captivates your energies, how it can be all-consuming to so many people. Jesus knew the tendency of the human heart. And so he wants to encourage people, set your attention and your affection on things that ultimately last. Treasure up for yourselves treasures on earth. That's what Jesus taught in Matthew 6. 
Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth. Don't do it. Well, this is the very thing that James is indicting people for doing. He's using the language of Jesus from the Sermon on the Mount. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, Jesus said, where moth and rust destroy. If you thought you heard that before when we were reading it from James, you have. His half-brother taught it. Where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures where? In heaven, where nothing can touch it because it's being guarded by God. Neither moth nor rust destroys it. Thieves never break in and steal it. For where your treasure is, there your what? There your heart will be also. See, here's the thing. That right there is the definitive teaching of the Lord Jesus Christ about the Christian and wealth. And it culminates with the statement that he makes just a couple of verses later in verse 24. No one can serve to what? No one can serve two masters. You cannot serve God and money. It's not a question of difficulty, brothers and sisters. It's a question of impossibility. You can't do it. You have to make your choice. I mean, if Baal be God, serve him. If God be God, serve him. But you've got to get off the fence and quit living double-mindedly. Will I serve God or will I serve my money? Because Jesus says, I can't do both. And you shouldn't want to. You shouldn't want to. Why would you want to serve or worship something that's so uncertain as bank accounts, just as uncertain as the next transmission repair or the next roof that blows off the house? Why would you want to put your trust in something that's uncertain and totally undependable, something that will not last? Now, that's what the Bible says a fool does. Only a fool puts his trust, bases his future on something that will not last. The Bible also says there in 1 Timothy 6, we brought nothing into the world and we cannot take what? We can't take anything out of the world. And that's why what we do with our wealth, how we use it, whether we have a little or a lot, how we use it is incredibly consequential. It's consequential today in terms of your own relationship with God. It's consequential today in terms of your relationship with others. It's consequential today in terms of your relationship with the church. And it will be consequential, incredibly consequential in the age that is to come. See, we tend to live as if we own what we have. In God's economy, I'm not sure y'all are still with me. If you're still with me, say amen. In God's economy, there is no own, only loan. No own, only loan. You and I don't own anything. And we know that because there come a time we're gonna lay down, close our eyes, take our last breath. And then all that stuff you thought you owned is gonna get left behind. And other people are going to get it. God's just gonna loan it to somebody else for a different season of life. So it all belongs to God, and that's why it's very important to God that you not only recognize that, but you live accordingly. That you use what you have wisely, biblically, in ways that ultimately honor the Lord. That's biblical living, that's biblical stewardship. Because God will one day demand an accounting of how we've used it. 
an accounting. I mean, that's the purpose of many of those parables that Jesus taught, bunches of them. I haven't done a study about what percentage of parables deals with this. They all deal with some aspect of life in the kingdom of God, 100% across the board. But I would venture that a great majority of them have something to do with stewardship, how we use the temporal stuff that God entrusts us. I mean, think about parable of the talents, right? The, the parable of the rich fool, we talked about that last week, the guy that just kept on acquiring, 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 building one barn after another. Talk about a hoarder. James may have had that parable in his mind when he's talking about how all these people that he's accusing were stockpiling stuff. That guy was a hoarder. He used it all for, it's all about his own life, not even realizing that before the sun sat, his life would be required of him and he would be standing in the presence of God, having to give an account for all those barns. The parable of the dishonest manager. So many of these parables of Jesus, there's a master who's got a lot and then there are servants that he has and he doles out some of his wealth to the servants and then he goes away for an extended period and says, here, manage this stuff. And here's the thing about those masters and all those parables, they always come home. They always come back. And then they always gather the servants together. And then they always say, let's rewind the videotape. Let's see how you did. And some of them fare pretty well because they have their mission to honor their master. They understand it's not mine, it's his. And what I'm shooting for is just a good blessing from the master. But then there are others, not so, not so much. And they end up paying a price, don't they? There's always an accounting of what's been loaned only for a season. That's why Leon Morris in his little book on the gospel of Luke is very right in saying a man whose life hangs by a thread and who may be called upon at any time to give account of himself is a fool if he relies on material things. Dr. Morris said that in his comment, uh, commentary on the parable of the rich fool. I thought that was a great statement. There'll be an accounting. And you want to stand as a servant before the Lord, being judged as one who used the master's things responsibly. Speaking of accounting, that judgment to come, uh, this scathing address of James serves not only as an indictment to the unbelieving rich and not only as a warning to the envious believer, but it also serves thirdly as an encouragement to the exploited poor. Now there would have been some in James's audience who would have been those poor day laborers who'd been abused by many of those wealthy people. And so I could imagine that many of those poor folk, which most of the church in the first century were poor, poor folk, and I can imagine that many of them listening to this letter from James from Jerusalem, listening to this letter being read, would have had a totally different takeaway than if 
a wealthy robber baron had been sitting in the room listening to it. They would have heard two different messages, wouldn't they? And so many in James's audience who may have been on the receiving end of this kind of mistreatment uh, needed to hear something that would potentially encourage them in order to keep going. And this is part of the reason too that I think James was so confused by the church showing partiality to the rich. Y'all remember all the way back in James chapter two where James confronts them about showing partiality and they were giving favoritism to the rich. Now it comes full circle. Now we understand why James was confused as to why in the world would you be showing partiality to rich folk? Because these are the ones that typically abuse you. These are the ones that haul you into law courts. These are the ones who withhold wages from you that rightfully belong to you. Verse six of chapter two, are not the rich the ones who oppress you, the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you're called? So James does a remarkable thing here because by denouncing the behavior of the evil, James actually encourages those who are poor and abused in his congregation. And he does it by reminding them of two very important things. Number one, God knows your name. God knows who you are. That's a good thing to remember. Regardless of what kind, some of y'all may be living on the end of heaping abuse of somebody else. And it's a good point to be reminded that God knows your name and God knows your number and God knows where you live. And the difficult time that you're going through in life is not a surprise to the Lord. God knows your name. God knows your situation. And here's the second thing that James wanted to communicate to those people who were being oppressed. Namely, not only did God know their situation, but that God would be just in dealing with those people who were oppressing them. This is why the Bible says, pray for those people. Don't take matters into your own hands. Don't seek retribution. Pray for those who persecute you. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Why? Because vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. And sometimes we forget about that. God doesn't balance the books every day necessarily, but that doesn't mean God's not keeping a record. That doesn't mean that the accounting will come due someday as the great Baptist preacher R.G. Lee used to say, there will be a payday someday. Payday someday. And James is reminding the struggling of his congregation, and they were many, for a lot of different reasons, that God knew and that God could be trusted and that God would be just. James sounds like an Old Testament prophet here, doesn't he? I mean, right out of the gate, and I glossed over this at the beginning, but this is a good time to circle back to it because right out of the gate, he pronounces judgment on the unrighteous. Come now, verse one, you rich. And then what does he say next? What are the next three words? Weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. 
Your gold and silver have corroded. Their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You've laid up treasures in the last day. I mean, that, those words weep and howl are in opposition to the words luxury and self-indulgence that occur also. Those who live in luxury and self-indulgence are the very ones that James says should be weeping and howling. These are words of extreme mourning, words of lament. And there's some of us in the room who've shed tears along the way, but then there are those incredible, powerful, poignant moments of loss when you do more than simply weep and sniffle, where you audibly groan to the point of shrieking and moaning. If you've ever done that before, you know exactly what I'm talking about. And James says, there are some people alive today living with smiles on their faces that need to weep and howl instead of laugh and feast. No, he says here in verse four, the cries of the harvesters have reached, here it is, the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. Don't just gloss over the use of the particular name of God there. <laughs> Yahweh Sabaoth, Lord of hosts, Lord of armies. James is, James is attaching the most militant name of God to the name of God here to describe the future of those who ignore God in this life. The God of angel armies has heard the cries of the harvesters. And James's point is God will be faithful. As the prophet Ezekiel had said 650 years before the writing of this letter, their silver and gold are not able to deliver them in the day of the wrath of the Lord. Now, what's the bottom line in all of this? Direct, direct, direct teaching and direct preaching this morning. What's the bottom line from all this heat? Simply this, whether you have a little or a lot, do not get caught up in the deceitfulness of riches. It's all shiny luster, but the shiny luster doesn't last. James's point is simply what the rest of the Bible affirms from start to finish, be a good steward. Know where your wealth comes from, know who owns it, and honor God with it. Always live with the end in mind. And that means learning to live with two very important dispositions, and with this we're done. I only have time to mention them. If you're going to overcome the deceitfulness of riches, the first disposition you have to master is the gift of contentment. Contentment. Hebrews 13, five, keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. For God has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. To see that final statement as a statement of ultimate trust, you can trust Jesus Christ. Do you all really believe that this morning? Christ has said to us, I'm not going anywhere. I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. And that's why you can put the sole source of security of your life in me and not in other things. Keep your life free from the love of money. Be content 
with what you have. And contentment means learning to be okay with simple. Learning to be happy with the life God gives you. Happy with the blessings that God gives you at any given moment. And you stop saying, I'll be happy when. Can I make a statement this morning? Y'all still with me? Say amen. If you can't be happy today, you won't be happy tomorrow. So learn to be content. Because godliness with contentment, the Bible says, is what? Great gain. That's right. The second disposition you need to master alongside contentment, generosity. Generosity. See, the, the key to real prosperity is not to stockpile, it's to release. Your life is supposed to be just a conduit. We used to sing an old song when I was a kid out of the Baptist hymnal, make me a channel of blessing. Make me a channel of blessing. Lord, make me a channel of blessing today. That means living with an open hand. Jesus said it, give and it will be what? Given to you. Proverbs 3, 9 and 10. Honor the Lord with your wealth and with the first fruits of all your produce. Then your barns will be filled with plenty. Give and it will be given to you. And your vats will be bursting with wine. Give and it will be given to you. See, this is the bottom line of biblical stewardship. Generous living opens up the blessing of power, uh, the blessing power of God in your life. And obedience is always the key. You'll never overcome the deceitfulness of riches until you first learn to obey what God has said about them. And the foundational statement is simply this, no one can serve two masters. And the question today is, which master will you trust? No more double-mindedness. Choose this day whom you will serve. The question on the table is, which master do I love the most? The master of riches or the eternal king of glory?